I've already removed my front license plate from my car. It's July 1st, and it's the This Week in the CLE podcast from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn with my colleagues Chris Ranowski and Jane Cahoon, and today's the first day that we are a one-license plate state. What are you hiding? (laughs) I I want to make it harder to get tickets. Okay, all right. That wasn't license on my priority stand. list. I, I haven't done that yet. I, mean, I was the first thing I did after I got to do. Okay. <laughs> Let's get started. Was the Justice Center in downtown Cleveland breached by protesters on May 30th or not? This is a big question. After A few days after the riot and the, the peaceful protest broke down, police chief had a meeting with the editorial board virtually, and he said that the Justice Center was breached by people who wanted to set fires and set inmates free. And we were real specific with them. People got inside and he said yes. And Chris Warnowski, when I let you know about this, you were instantly skeptical. Uh, This week, Corey Schaefer published a story, or last week, that provided a lot more skepticism about this because he looked at hours of video that showed no such breach. And now we have serious doubts about it. Why is that? Well, yesterday, uh, the Cuyahoga County Sheriff David Schilling told the county council that that was not true, that protesters did not breach the downtown Justice Center during the May 30th demonstration. And he said they did not gain entry to the complex, which houses the courtrooms, the county prosecutor's office and the main jail. And he said, quote, they persisted to try to get in the building, but we held our positions. And so. Nobody that entered the Justice Center is how emphatic he was about this. Which which is huge. And of course, we have no answer from the city on this. I'm doing my letter from the editor column about the work Corey Schaefer has been doing because it's just been tremendous, his follow-ups on the riot. And I asked him yesterday, why why do you think it's so important to get to the bottom of whether it was breached or not? And he said, Look, they're using the that breach as one of the excuses or justifications for firing tear gas and projectiles at people in a way Cleveland police and, and, and law enforcement in Cleveland have never done before. So if it's not true, it's that much less of a justification. And he's exactly right. That's why this is important. If there was no breach, then there's less reason to attack the citizenry. Uh, and I'm just staggering that that the police chief would say that if it's not true. I'm trying to understand why you would say something that could be proven so demonstrably false. Right. And we, and look, we talked about this Monday, I think it was, when we were talking about all of the video that they released on late Friday. I mean, there was, there was nothing in that that showed that. And, you know, it's not, it's not unusual for there to be gaps in what they provide to us for reasons that sometimes are are legitimate and sometimes otherwise not. You know, sometimes they say, well, you know, we still have to redact some faces in this or whatever. But today, you know, there there was never any any video or any any description from any of the the numerous people that we've talked to about what happened down there that day. And, you know, I mean you can go back and look at Facebook Live video that our reporters took and and 
You know, I mean, even I was down there. And if that had happened, I feel like there would have been a much different response if people had gotten in that building. Well, they would have arrested them, right? Well, right. And, yeah, and I mean, there's no, no one's been charged with that. There's yeah. no, there's nothing. It smelled from, from the get-go. And, this is an and, important and, story because yeah. if, I mean, the evidence is growing that, I mean, it's what Corey found in the video. The evidence is growing. It's not definitively certain yet, but the evidence is growing that the people at that protest were largely peaceful. They threw some water bottles and maybe some food. And really, the fires and the rock throwing and the window smashing did not start until police started unloading on people. And that's really important. If we had a city council that was worth a damn, they would be holding hearings to get to the bottom of this. But as we've reported, (laughs) the head of the public safety committee, Matt Zone, had a son who was on the scene as a police officer has a conflict a mile long, but won't step down, won't demand answers. And so really, Corey Schaefer is the one that is pressing for the truth. Uh, and I really do salute his work. It's oh, this week in the CLE. Is the Ohio Senate to blame for the holdup on fixing Ohio's wretched unemployment compensation system? We've talked at length on this podcast about all of the problems that the unemployment system has. Chris Ranowski has regaled us with his own (laughs) unbelievable experience. There is a reform effort underway, Jane Cahoon, and it seems like it's blocked up in the Ohio Senate. Can you describe what's going on? Sure. And by the way, you can count me among those as well uh, in that camp with with Chris. (laughs) I'm totally, totally frustrated. Anyway, uh, so the Ohio House passed a bill on June 11th that would provide more oversight and improvements to the system. It went to the Ohio Senate on June 17th. So it's been sitting there for a couple of weeks without being assigned to a committee. So on uh, Tuesday, a group of uh, advocates uh, pushing this bill held a news conference to to draw attention to it. And this included a couple people. And um, let me add my own little snark here. I'm sure it didn't take too much effort to find these people who had who have had trouble with the unemployment system and and no. nightmare stories. <laughs> right. So the bill would do all sorts of things to uh, reform the system and have accountability, even putting in a path. So when you're frustrated with your your experience, you could call a legislator and the legislators would have their own path for helping you navigate the system. But what are some of the other things it would do? Well, they, they'd create a system for customer service complaints, and then they'd create a system. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Stop right there. So, <laughs> so we're going to have a system for customer service complaints. I mean, we've got nothing but customer service I, complaints. They don't have a way to deal with that now? I guess, I guess not. <laughs> I mean, I don't really know what to do except try to call and then, you know. What a concept. To, Sorry, high call <laughs> volume. Go, go away. You know, it would maintain a list of all the contacts related to the system and create a system, as you said, for lawmakers that they can use to help their constituents get through. And it would create a system in which applicants get notified if there are some eligibility issues. The other thing is that there would have to be, uh, I don't know if the word audit is the right yeah, word, but the there would have to be... Right. The auditor would have six months to review the system. What's what's odd about that is the auditor doesn't need a legislation to do an audit, right? I mean, the, the auditor has the power to 
to audit all sorts of things. Given how many problems there have been, and God, the problems are legion, you would think that the auditor might have launched as an audit into the whole system already as a right. public service. I don't know if there are some barriers to that that we don't know about, but but you're right. I mean, I think they just want to cover all the bases here. I mean, because people are so frustrated and it's so messed up that, you know, they want to do something just to make sure these things are being addressed. Yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe you don't get a performance audit unless it's invited. I mean, the unemployment bureau, or well, the name of it, whatever the name of the agency is, could invite a performance audit by Yoast. But if they don't, maybe the, the legislation is the path to that. Anyway, I mean, why isn't the Senate doing it? I mean, the House passed it unanimously, which is kind of amazing given the discord there. Right. Why isn't the Senate jumping on this? Well, they say that the bill's going to be fully vetted and they promise that it's going to be assigned to a committee soon. That's about all they they told us. And maybe by the time the pandemic's over, we'll finally have... Yeah, a, they're going to go on summer vacation system. first and then get around to it, maybe. Well, but it is it, it is important that, you know, we do fix this. I mean, Lord, it knows, is. Lord knows, you know, if we ever have to go through something like this again. And I think the... You know, it, I mean, we we laugh about it a little bit, but the governments and states all over the country have sort of hamstrung their unemployment systems for, you know, the sake of cutting budgets and, you know, for encouraging, quote unquote, people to go back to work or, you know, whatever weird logic there is for not having a social safety net. And I guarantee you, when you take a long view of this, we probably spent more money dealing with the emergency of fixing our unemployment system than we would have if we had just had a sensible one that worked to begin with. So, you know, all of the scrambling and overtime and and contracting we had to do, you know, in order to to basically make this thing barely function anyway, you know. It, yeah, it we're still getting complaints. Expensive. I'm not, I mean, I think it, we're still terrible, hearing from people. Terrible, and, can I tell and, you? That's and, terrible. And, and the answer that they've often given is, well, don't worry. It's retroactive. You'll eventually get your money. But if you're looking to buy food today and you mm-hmm. haven't had money coming in for a month, that's really not a good answer. I, I just it's just surprised to me that the Senate is holding this thing up and, and hopefully there'll be some more pressure to get it moving. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How does a coronavirus pandemic make it harder for me to get quarters, dimes and other coins? This pandemic has had all sorts of unusual ramifications, but Chris Warnowski, this is one of the odder ones. There's a shortage of coins in this country because of the pandemic? Right. And this is, I didn't even think about this because I'm largely, you know, cash free now. But apparently a lot of retailers, banks and are are really limiting the amount of coins you can get back. And they're encouraging people to sort of use debit cards and credit cards as much as possible. The Federal Reserve, which distributes you know, coin money to banks and credit unions said that the pandemic has had a significant disruption on the supply chain and the normal patterns for coins. And the mint has actually slowed down production to protect workers. And I I guess during the height of the shutdown, fewer coins came back to the Federal Reserve from banks because people weren't going out and shopping and, and depositing cash and coin in banks. So, you know, this this came up because Mark Bona, one of our reporters, took a snapshot of a sign at a area Lowe's store that said, you know, we are 
limiting the amount of coins we can use. So we had Mary talk to a couple of other retailers like Meyer, I believe is one of them. You're going to start seeing this pop up and being a problem, I think around uh, some stores. So, you know, I, I think if you have the ability to, to go cash and coin free, do so because it's, it's causing headaches already. Mark is a fellow woodworker and he sent me a photo from inside that Lowe's that showed lumber racks completely empty. So it sounds like it's more than coins that are in short supply uh, at that Lowe's. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Where does Ohio stand in relation to other states considered the key battlegrounds for the presidential election? Poll came out a week or so ago that showed that we pretty much had a dead heat in Ohio, which was a surprise to some politics watchers who thought that we were pretty much a Trump state. So Seth Richardson, our politics writer, went and looked at where things stand with battleground states in a fascinating piece published yesterday. Jane Cahoon, what did it say? Well, it identified Ohio as one of 10 states that Seth looked at that, that he considers to be battleground states to watch in 2020. And those 10 states account for 179 of the 270 electoral votes that you need to win the presidency. And as you said, Trump won Ohio by eight points, and he's got a big organized machine here called the Ohio Republican Party. And we've got a Republican governor here, Mike DeWine, who's quite popular. But as we know, voters are souring on Trump. And those polls, as you said, show a really tight race with Joe Biden. And uh, the, I think the real clear politics average has them has them tied. Beyond that, he also looked at Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. Right, right, right. I, if you want to know the other states, the, the big three, that he, uh, which he calls uh, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan. And then we've also got Arizona, Florida, North Carolina, Iowa, and then go figure, Georgia and Texas in the mix. I mean, some of those still, and even Ohio is considered by the ratings outfits to lean Republican but they're competitive. Yeah, I mean, it, four months is a long time in politics, but it does seem like this election is getting further and further away from from Trump, even to the point where people are speculating because he doesn't want to be branded a loser that he would walk away. But uh, anyway, it's a good piece by Seth. Check it out. It really gives you the current picture of of how the, the central states in this election are, are running right now. It's this week in the CLE. Who vandalized a Black Lives Matter mural painted by about 100 artists in Cleveland? Chris Ranaski, this is kind of a, a sad story, but the, but it's not really what you expect. It's not like white supremacists went out there to do this. What do we know? So um, Adam Faris went down to the mural that was painted last week. Uh, and, and, and after he learned that somebody had, had written or it, it, it wasn't huge, it wasn't a massive vandalism, but it was, it was enough that you could see it and it, and it did draw people's attention. And somebody wrote, uh, black lives matter is Marxist on the mural. And, uh, Adam spoke with Blaine Griffin, a Cleveland city councilman who shared some photos and, and videos with us of the man who did scrawl the message on, on the pavement. And, and, you know, he, it was a black man and, and it was somebody that Blaine, I, I don't know if he knows him or is aware of him, but Blaine said, you know, that, you know, he respects the man's right to free speech and everything. And, and, and that the, the man is generally somebody who espouses a lot of conservative, you know, sort of talk 
show talking points uh, about things like abortion and Black Lives Matter. Um, and, and so, you know, they're, I, I think they're going to fix the mural and the police are investigating as to whether, you know, this was a, a crime or anything like that. But, it, you know, right as of right now, nobody's been arrested, but. I know. liked what Blaine said though, about, I mean, Blaine's not sure it's a crime. I mean, yeah. I mean he seemed to have a, a, a decent outlook and his, his thought was let's get some people together and go talk to him about why this is important to us. That seems like such a measured and thoughtful response <laughs> rather than just slapping him with a misdemeanor charge and hauling him in. Right. Um, you got to love Blaine. He's just, he's trying to change minds, move hearts rather than play the law and order card. Well, I mean, you know, maybe, maybe the bar for, you know, decency has been set so low in, in our public discourse about this issue that, you know, somebody doing one nice thing seems like a, a, a <laughs> biblical miracle, but, but, but really, I mean, it is, you know, I, I, I think as we have these discussions about this, I, it, this is a very good example of, you know, I, don't call the police, you know, I mean, look, there's police there and, and, and somehow this managed to, to squeak through. So, you know, who, you know, but I, you know, in, in the larger discussion of, of what, this whole movement right now that's going on, you know, it, it really is about like not getting the police involved in everything. Right. Right. Which is, this is the, this is the right way to do it. I mean, this is something where, you know, where you go in and you do have a discussion about it. And well, and Blaine has, is, 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 is is ridiculous as calling black lives matter. Marxist is on its face. You know, there are a lot of people who are hearing that from people in positions of authority, you know, lawmakers and, And so, you know, it, it, whether it's true or not, it becomes somebody's idea of the truth. So, you know, having a, a, a decent discussion about it is probably not a bad thing. Well, and Blaine was the longtime Cleveland community relations director. He gets a lot of the credit for not having violence break out after Tamir Rice and, uh, and the Brelo verdict. And, you know, there, there, there's a lot of talk. He could run for mayor. There's a lot of talk about other candidates and people, I've heard a lot of people discount Blaine. I, I I thought for a couple of years now he if he runs he would be a front runner in that. And and every time you hear of him doing something, he impresses. It's his response to this was very very different than I think you would get from a lot of other council members. And it was thoughtful. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Akron is one of the first big city school districts to unveil its plan for fall. So what is it? I uh, might be closer to this issue than most because my wife's a teacher and there's many conversations going on in our house about whether she'll be back in school or not. Uh, We are seeing more and more districts. They've talked to the parents. They've talked to the teachers. It seems like most parents want their kids back in school. Uh, But Akron actually laid out the plan, something we haven't seen from Cleveland and and some of the other big districts. Jane Cahoon, what are they what are they thinking? Well, it, it is a draft plan, and it could be altered depending on the guidelines that the governor lays out, perhaps even um, tomorrow. But basically, under this plan, it's it's going to differ by age group. So kindergarten through second grade would go to class every day, and then third through eighth grade would split up the week with, with two days in school and then the remaining three learning remotely. And high schoolers would would learn largely remotely, but with some in-person group work. And all of the students and staff would wear masks. So students- this is like, 
the inverse though of of the ease of getting people to wear masks. Like I could get high school students to wear masks, but mm-hmm. <laughs> kindergarten and first graders, good luck with that. But they're the ones that'll be there every day. Yeah, How are you gonna, yeah. Wow, that's a wacky, a wacky thing. How did, right. I mean, getting the kindergartner to wear a mask all day long? I would hate to be the one in charge of that. I uh, can't but, comment on that. I just keep thinking of Laura Johnston's previous comment about cleaning snot off of masks. And I, I can't even go there. But anyway. Yeah, we're I, her from this discussion. Where, where is she at? Um, Chris Renowski. Well, yeah, this is Chris Renowski. Maybe there, this won't be as bad. You know, I mean, kids have had a whole summer of getting used to this. And look, as it, somebody who doesn't have a kid, I, I really can't speak with any authority here. But I mean, you know, maybe parents have been conditioning their children to get ready for this all summer long. And you know, maybe that might make it a little easier, but I'm, I'm with you guys. I, I really just, I, I don't see how little kids are going to adapt to this very well, given, you know, the, God, Chris, the I, knew you moved. Of the behavior. <laughs> I knew you moved last weekend. I didn't realize you were in the land of rainbows and unicorns. <laughs> parents have been teaching their kids to wear masks. Good luck with that. Yeah. Anyway, did they explain what their thinking was about why they would keep high school students home. I mean, what did, was there a logic to the older you are, the the more you stay at home? Is it just they believe that they that older people, older students can grasp online learning easier? You know, those are all good points. None of which I <laughs> know the answer <laughs> to, but I I think that had to play into it. That you know, and, and the little kids probably just don't aren't as big of a risk. But I should mention here that all students would have the option to work fully online through a system that the Akron Public Schools um, have. It's an online learning program. So they wouldn't be forced, I don't think, into any of these situations. And they would try to make extra efforts for in-person learning for students with significant disability, regardless of, of how old they are. There are people who argue that the reason... Ohio and other states avoided the big surges that were originally predicted in the coronavirus was because of the schools, that the schools were the most serious threat of spreading this. Now it's schools and bars. So the, the teachers are worried about this, that, that the teachers will be the front line of, of the mixing of, of people from various backgrounds where, where you could get it. And is there much discussion about how big of a threat getting all these people together in, in tight quarters is to really launching a new surge? Well, the 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 plan also includes they they talk about you know health assessments and temperature taking and how to deal with it if anybody is sick and so they seem to have thought out that part of it too, but you know, as you said, the reality is a lot of parents want their kids back in school and it's the best way for young kids to learn, really. Again, I'm married to one, but this does feel like we're putting teachers into a uh, into some serious hazard. We'll have to see how this plays out. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. Why do bicycling advocates say Cleveland is missing a step with its bike path plans and the rehab of West 65th Street. We all know that, that one of the biggest surges as a result of the coronavirus is the use of bicycles. It's very hard to find new bikes and get bike parts right now because so many people have taken to it. Anybody who 
drives around on the weekend can see there are a whole lot of people riding bikes. So there's more of a focus on making it safer for them. Chris Warnowski, what's up with West 65th Street? So Bike Cleveland, which is a, a very big bike advocacy group here, and Cleveland Metro Parks want a dedicated track for bikers included in the rehabilitation of West 65th Street, which is planned. Um, and part of the reason they want to do that is because it would it would basically link a bunch of different trails along the lake and, and the Cuyahoga River together. And as proposed, the bike project has has bike lanes, but they they basically said, you know, we want more than just a, a dedicated bike lane. We want we want a two way track with a three foot buffer for cyclists, you know, because you know those streets are, you know, when you when you throw a bike lane into those streets, it's it does put you pretty close together with the cyclists, and it does create a lot of anxiety, I think, for people who are on bikes and for people who are driving behind people who are on, you know, on bikes. So, um, and the city has said that, you know, they, they, they do have such a track plan on, uh, Lorraine Avenue from West 20th to West 65th street, but they will also consider this request if, if they can find money for it in the budget. But it's, I mean, this would be a kind of a big deal, you know, I mean, it would, it would basically be able to allow you to, to take the, the Edgewater bike trail down to, you know, the flats and up through the new, the red line greenway that, that is currently under construction. And it would create a really big loop that you could kind of, uh, that you could bike, you know, without even really having to go out, you know, I mean, there's a lot of trails through the Metro Park system that are linked together, but this would, well, and, this and, would really and, put a lot together. And what we're talking about really is protection from the texting motorist. It's There's a great fear by bicyclists for good reason because of all the accidents of inattentive car drivers veering into the bike lanes if they're not buffered and, and hurting them. And, you know, if you're riding a bike, you hit by a car, you're, you're in big trouble. There, there are a lot of bicyclists like Jane Cahoon, for instance, that, that worry about this. So setting it off with that buffer protects the bicyclists. It's it's a pretty serious issue. And if you want people to use that that network that you just described, you've got to make it safer for them. I mean, Jane Coon, you'd probably feel a lot better riding on the bike path as in the style of Bike Cleveland's description than what Cleveland is planning, right? Yes, absolutely. You know, my bike riding right now is pretty much limited to between 6 a.m. and 7 a.m. when there's not a lot of traffic. And there's a reason for that, because I don't care to be like right in the midst of traffic like that. It certainly would make me feel more secure. And the links that Chris pointed out are important, too, to link up with other trails. It would be really fun. Right. Well, in, in tracks like this, you know, you've got to keep in mind that from a, a, a city planning perspective, it actually does help the flow of of car traffic too, because, you know, anytime you get stuck behind a bike in a place, you know, even if there is a dedicated trail, you know, if, if you're a considerate motorist and you wait until there is an oncoming traffic to kind of, you know, give room for a car, you have to slow down and that slow downs the cars behind you and everything. So, you know, having a place where bikes can be dedicated, you know, keeps, you know, traffic in the other lanes where the cars are moving at, at, uh, you know, a consistent pace. So you're not gumming up, you know, uh, thoroughfares for, for cars at, 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 you know, specific times during the day. Well, let's hope the city 
finds the money and the budget to do it because it sounds like it's a good idea. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Hey, I want to do a quick update to a conversation we had. I think it was Monday, maybe it was last week. We were wondering why the Ohio Turnpike was not going to follow Pennsylvania and go with a ticketless system where they send you a bill if you don't have Easy Pass. And the answer was that far fewer people use Easy Pass on the Ohio Turnpike than Pennsylvania Turnpike. And a an attentive listener to the podcast sent in a note saying, you know, Ohio's Easy Pass fees are way higher than Pennsylvania's. And maybe if Ohio made the cost of the Easy Pass unit cheaper, more people would use it. It's a good point, and I'm appreciative of the listener who sent that in. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Jane. Thanks to everybody for listening to the podcast this week, and the CLE will return tomorrow. Mm-hmm.